0: Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode 13 in this series all about Antarctica. I will keep releasing them every Thursday until I run out of episodes. So today's episode features Dr. Michelle Taylor. She's at the University of Essex in England and she works with deep sea environments like deep sea corals, which are a thing and I did not know that prior to talking to Michelle. So the deep sea is considered to be roughly 200 meters deep and beyond, which is also roughly the edge of the continental shelf. Michelle started in coral reef ecology, but as she describes it, she has one warm foot and one cold foot and now studies both tropical and deep sea, aka not tropical, corals. So we talk a lot about corals and her experience with them. Um, she was also on the Weddell Sea Expedition in 2019, which was this like multi-pronged expedition that was studying the ice shelves in the Weddell Sea and also using underwater vehicles to search for the Endurance, which was the ship that Ernest Shackleton and his expedition team lost in the sea ice in 1915. And that's all I'm going to say about that part. So you're just going to have to listen to Michelle tell that story, which is fascinating. So we start this episode sort of talking about LUMCON, which is a marine center here in Coquitry, here being Louisiana, because she knows the director. And so it's just like this random cross-world, cross-discipline connection that we kind of have because I've taken several classes at LUMCON. And the, it just amazes me that someone from across the world would have even heard of it. But um, apparently the connection is the deep sea world, so that's cool. So we're just going to launch into it, so enjoy. I'm a wetland scientist, so I'm um, in South Louisiana, which is lots of wetlands. Are you in, in Lumcon? No, no, but I do know where I've been to Lumcon Con. Much. It's interesting that you've heard of it, because I feel like it's this little... I don't know, a marine center that could, down in the middle of nowhere, but it's so cool. Yeah, it's, um, because it's run by Craig
1: McLean, who is, you know, a deep sea guy, so I know him
0: because he's, he's, you know, a big deep sea hero, so. Oh, that's interesting. I just know of him as the director, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I follow him on Twitter because LumpCon's awesome, <laughs> I didn't know he was a deep sea guy. That's interesting. What a small world He he started the deep sea news. There's
1: like this amazing website which which just has deep sea news on it. And um, yeah, he was the the first president of the deep sea biology society as well. I'm learning so much already. I didn't know any of these things existed. Yeah, I'd love to go. I mean, it looks like a really cool institute. Like they could do so many fun bits of science. It's brilliant. And I like their attitude. Like they seem very
0: down to earth and, you know, fun. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's nothing down there. There's some camps and there's the facilities. And so, I mean, you know, when you're there, you're there. And it's like, seems like a good group of people, which is good since there's nowhere to go. So I went to LSU in Baton Rouge and um, I took a class at LUMCON one summer. So it was kind of cool to be down there for a month. Yeah, it's it's decent. I I would love to go. Love to go. Easy access to all the wetlands. It's a good spot because they have their two big research vessels. Well, one's really big and one's, you know, medium sized. They're research vessels. It's like the deep sea dream. Like if you can get somewhere that's got a big vessel
1: where you can get to the deep sea, that's like, it's all about access.
0: Okay, so that maybe leads to my first question. I'm curious about what qualifies as deep sea, like how deep do you have to go to be deep sea versus, I don't know, average sea? Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) No, that's a really good question. So as with all good questions, it's debated hotly. Most people would say probably 200 meters is the conventional um, depth range at what point you start calling it deep sea. And that's probably because that's the edge of the continental shelves broadly for most area of the world. Um, and that's when there is a very big change in temperature and light. So the, um, it seems like an appropriate place. So yeah, I, I only, I used to be a shallow water person. You know, I used to be shallow, <laughs> but um, now I'm just so deep. Uh, yeah, um, so I only really get interested about 200 meters.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I just didn't know because you know I'm a wetlands person. Everything's you know above water most of the time, <laughs> so that's close. Cool. I, I was just curious, but that makes sense.
1: But actually, there isn't um, the exception to that rule would be Antarctica, because in Antarctica you have such super cold water all the way up to the surface, which means you can often get traditionally so-called deep sea species who like it really cold in about five meters of water. <laughs> So, so actually I would, you know, it depends where you are. So I've been known to collect my deep sea corals from like 10 meters in in Antarctica. So there are exceptions to the rule as with all good biology.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, so that's an interesting like segue then, because uh, until you emailed me, I didn't know deep sea coral was a thing. So I would love to hear about all of that and, uh, you know, how the deep sea can be 10 meters in Antarctica.
1: Yeah, that doesn't make sense does it on a lot of levels, but it is actually true. So yeah, um, yeah, deep sea corals are these incredible things. So our shallow water corals, the ones that if you go on holiday to tropical locations, you can swim with them and, you know, parrotfish might bite on your fins. Um, those wonderful places. Um, those have little zooxanthellae that live inside their animals, um, live inside the coral animal. And that zooxanthellae supplements their income their energy income by it processes energy from the sun and gives them a load of little extra energy. So a lot of those corals are frankly stuffed, you know, absolutely useless without this zooxanthellae. And when the temperature increases and corals bleach, that's them spitting out all of this zooxanthellae, which they actually kind of need, which is why there's so many die offs in shallow water coral reefs in hot spells. And um, Deepwater coral reefs, um, there all the corals there, obviously there's no light, so there's no zooxanthellae, so they're called a zooxanthellae corals, they don't have any, um, and they um, there are very few large structural species that make quite dramatic, you know, kilometre-long reefs and things. So you, what's more common is um, to find coral gardens where you just find an area of hard surface where you get all of these different soft corals living in one location rather than harder corals like scleractinia. But yeah, so, and the corals down there because they don't have the zooxanthellae, they just filter feed, they have their tentacles out and all of the stuff from the surface that dies, you know, all, that, all of that pelagic uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton when that's life is when it's coarse and it rains down. So any deep sea video footage you see, there's like this marine snow that's that's falling across the screens. Well that's what they're filter feeding off. So all of the coral do quite well by living in that
0: manner. So okay, so you said there are hard corals and soft corals. Are the soft <laughs> corals what's in Antarctica because they have the tentacles and things and is hard coral like what you find in more tropical areas?
1: So the hard corals can be found in both shallow and deep and the soft corals can also be found in both shallow and deep. So it's just that the hard corals, the scleractinia, they're broadly called scleractinia, but with, mm-hmm. as with all good, you know, non-specific taxonomic names, um, it means not much. So <laughs> taxonomically, the scleractinia are shallow and deep and you can get some hard octocorals just to really throw, throw it, you know, just to be annoying. Um, Scleractinian corals kind of appear very shallow and very deep. It's just that in shallow waters, they've been, they've diversified enormously. There's hundreds and hundreds um, of species of Scleractinia Um, and there's probably hundreds and hundreds in the deep sea. They just don't make these big dramatic reefs. So there's, I can't remember the numbers, like 15, 16 species that that kind of can make relatively large reef areas. Whereas there's lots of solitary corals where they're just like one massive polyp. It looks like a, an upside down pyramid, but it's round. It's like a cone. Like if you're going to eat an ice cream cone, that's what these solitary corals look like for the most part in the deep sea. With the tentacles sticking out where you would be licking the ice cream off. The scleractinia, but they kind of don't look like the ones that we think if we thought about shallow water scleractinia. So there's those guys and then there's the soft corals and they make these beautiful soft coral gardens that kind of sway if there's any current and of course all of these corals have tentacles and these the little feeding apparatus that pop out the the top of these um polyps um and feed so that's kind of a common thing for all coral so coral are part of the Nidaria, and it's the nid bit that's a stinging cell that's what it means Mm. so though with the jellyfish and the sea anemones
0: Okay, that's cool. Yeah, my only experience with coral is, you know, somewhere tropical and they're they're very mostly sharp and you know hard, I would that's say. Because
1: you were a sensible, intelligent lady who um, is gonna go to nice tropical locations and swim on coral reefs <laughs> rather than going on enormous seagoing vessels <laughs> and throwing large bits of equipment into the ocean, which tends to be how
0: we look at the deep sea ones. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that's a good, another good segue, uh, because I'm curious how, like, I'm curious about the type of work and like maybe your questions you're, you're working on and also how you do your research, because I mean, the water is really cold. (laughs) So yeah.
1: Yeah. There was, there was a tactical error in one element of this where I moved from a shallow water, warm, tropical coral reefs into the deep sea. But to be honest, I'm, I'm very happy with that, that move because the deep sea is so, it's so exciting to work in because so much of it is undiscovered and unexplored and we don't understand the rules of nature as well in the deep sea as we do in shallow waters so there's lots of big questions to still ask in terms of ecology and how organisms breed how you know how they survive how can they be so aged so some of the corals are like four and a half thousand years old some of the ones that we've um age so they can live a, like that's that, that little thing landed and started growing there when the pyramids were a good idea you know they just started thinking about putting them together and so you, the extraordinary age of some of these things so there's so many different elements of the life um the natural history that we don't understand
0: that's so old holy crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're one
1: of the oldest things on the planet They're very aged, some of these. So I think that we we know broadly that the pace of life in the deep sea is a little slower. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: have, you know, really old, slow growing fish, which is why it's terrible to eat deep sea fish, because, you know, they're not they're not going to repopulate that population very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, You're talking decades, if not, you know, a century. So I'm not really surprised that when people started looking at the deep sea coral, that they had this very slow, seemingly slow um, existence and aged um, life strategy. But it does mean that impacts in the deep sea are gonna be monumentally long in their recovery. So you know, trawling of deep sea areas for fish is like a ridiculously terrible idea if you're going to hit something that's 4000 years old that i mean how much do you want that fish <laughs> like can we just leave it it's it's like cutting down the redwoods to catch birds it's it's just a crazy idea so yeah i can get quite vocal with my my anti trawling rhetoric
0: yeah, I mean that makes sense though, because things that old, like you said, they're they're long lived and slow growing. And they, they don't just bounce back, you know, like a rabbit might, <laughs>
1: you know. <laughs> no, unfortunately, and there's little evidence of them bouncing back. So there's been some relatively long scale, like three, four decades studies on seamounts off Tasmania by all the wonderful people at Niwa. And um there's very little evidence that things are recovering. Some are like mobile things, but not static, long-lived ancient coral, <laughs> that's, that's not gonna, that's not gonna recover anytime soon.
0: Right, yeah, it makes me wonder if, if there's so, this is why the parallel that I'm thinking about here is like in South Louisiana, we have these old growth cypress trees, which can be, I think the oldest one they know of is like 1500 years old. So, you know, it's ancient, right? but they can't regenerate because the current conditions don't they're not conducive for like saplings to grow and succeed so i'm curious if like something like that may also be happening with the corals like if the conditions are just not enough where like a young one could survive like if it just doesn't meet the requirements but i have no idea
1: and neither does anyone else rachel (laughs) yeah i mean um we on a short scale so the other really cool thing that deep sea coral are used for is to actually look back in time at what climate was like histor- historically so you know chemistry rarely lies um a chemist would argue otherwise but um i have some wonderful um, biogeochemistry friends based at university of bristol and um, professor laura robinson i go to see with her quite regularly and she um Investigates historical climate change by looking at coral skeletons. So she ages the coral and then works out what that coral skeleton, what the composition of it is. And because composition broadly follows rules to do with what water mass it's in, you can kind of work out what temperature it was then and from the different types of chemicals that you find in the coral and the chemistry of that coral. So Over that time scale, we can be quite confident that some of of, of what the temperatures and what the areas, uh, what the water situation has changed in that time period. So we know that there are some deep sea areas on the planet that have already increased by probably like half a degree, if not a little bit more. So what impact that has on coral breeding is entirely unstudied and unknown. So um, the We don't really understand the cues for a lot of breeding. From when you get a coral, if you were to dissect it and you find loads of eggs of different sizes, you can presume that they're not holding onto those eggs to release them all at once. It looks like they release them slowly over time, but what initiates that, we don't know. But there are other corals where all of the eggs are kind of the same size. So you think, oh, well, it might be brooding these and holding them a little bit before it releases them all at once. What that cue is, wow that would be a really cool thing to work out and um i'm not aware of any video or anybody that's ever seen a coral spawning in the deep sea you know we have very precious rare snippets of time that we see these creatures when we use really rather large robots to go and look at, at what's down there so i mean it would be an absolute f- freaky like coincidence to see one of them spawning. I mean, that's I mean, that's instantly. I've not thought about it before, but that's instantly on my bucket list. <laughs> like that's to see deep sea coral spawning has just essentially definitely hit the top 10 on the on the on the life bucket list there.
0: Yeah, it seems like stumbling upon that's like a needle in a haystack. Like you would just find it on accident, right?
1: I mean, that that would be rare. I'm trying to think about the weirdest thing and it was on one of Laura's expeditions. And so when we go on these expeditions, as some background, they are, you know, 90, 100 meter boats. There's probably 50 people on there, half scientists, half crew who are amazing and we could not do any science without them. Um, We take large robots, remote operated vehicles on board, which we drop down a few thousand meters, and we sit in a nice warm van with many screens. You might have seen them on science programs, and we we um, talk to the remote operated vehicle pilots, and together we coordinate where we're going. Um, like if we're doing surveys, or if we're collecting animals, or if we're collecting sediments, or if we're collecting water samples. Loads of different things you could do with that amazing robot. Um, so yeah, the process of getting to sea and doing that. And if you go to some far-flung locations, you're probably talking about, you know, 50-plus days at sea. Your packing's going to be good. You've got to be really, really good at packing. So I t- we've done a lot of expeditions around seamounts. And there was this once where we're, you know, slowly going up the side of this seamount. And I won't lie, it's been a little dull. It was a lot of sediment. So it was a lot of, you know, every so often, sea star every so often see cucumber, you know, been like that for a few hours. And um, we're always looking out for little dead, ancient, you know, fossilized coral for Laura's um, coral projects for climate change studies. So you're often looking into the the gray black areas and, and it's very difficult to see them. You kind of got to get your 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 visual match in your mind, or else you're never going to find them. So the ROV pilots have been doing this for hours, and they're really good. So they've, they've got eyes like hawks, and um, we were, you know, looking uh, on the on the cameras. And one of the guys goes, "Oh, look at that! It looks like a tooth." And we were like, "Hmm," I was like, "Really?" And we we're like, "Zoom in on it," and I was like, "Oh, that's a megalodon tooth." <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, what? I was like, it can't be. And then they pick it up and it is this massive, solitary megalodon tooth. And you think, that megalodon tooth has just been sat on the side of this seamount a few thousand meters down for the last, what like I can't even remember how old they are, like 40 million years? I have no idea, but tens of millions of years, and we've just jogged across it and and, and spotted it and picked it up. And it's now on her desk in Bristol. <laughs> wild so that's probably the weirdest most rare like what are the chances
0: yeah (laughs) oh that's crazy that's really cool
1: I want one I really want one
0: (laughs) yeah maybe another time y'all will somehow stumble across another one
1: (laughs) I do so much fossil hunting on the beaches nearby in Essex looking for for shark's teeth they have like you know, these 30-year-old thresher shark's teeth and things, and then some salmon shark teeth that are fossilized, but I've never found a megalodon tooth other than that one.
0: Yeah, that would be really wild. Well, I don't know how to ask this question, because I'm curious about what your research is with the deep-sea coral, and also, like, robots sound awesome, and I'm curious about those.
1: (laughs) Who doesn't love a good robot, right? Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, we're we're lucky because the the UK has this amazing deep-sea robot, um called Isis before Isis was like an awful thing to be called so you know we're thinking more Greek gods here. um so yeah it, and it's incredible it's so good for science it can go down to 6,000 meters it has two big manipulator arms on the front but it also has like a vacuum system so you can slurp up animals that you want to be a bit more delicate with and um, it has loads of boxes for me to put my little deep sea treasures in um you know, lots of ways of collecting things as a water collector on the back. So a mini CTD, which we use to collect water and you can put push cores on it. So it's this like amazing, and of course it's got, you know, the number of high definition video cameras. So, which is invaluable for doing surveys of these communities and working out, you know, how dense these coral are, like, are they rare? Are they common? Do they, what do they live on? Do they just live on rock? Um, what type of rock? What like angle do they live on? Is it high, high um, flow of water area? You know, is it or is it low? So, lots of questions that we're trying to get our heads around to understand where they exist and why they exist there. So, a lot of the research we do goes into that type of very basic understanding of what's there. I do a lot of taxonomy research as well because you, I mean. An expedition does not go by where you don't find a new species on a deep sea expedition. If you look hard enough, you'll definitely find one. Is you know, um, it just depends how small you go, I suppose. <laughs> um, but broadly, the questions I'm really interested in, I like, I, I just find it fascinating that you have these populations of coral that are down there, and we don't really have a very good idea of how well connected they are. So. Are the populations of corals that we find, for instance, off the um, Canadian coast in the Atlantic, uh, are they the same as the populations that we find off Scotland, like off west coast of Scotland? So I've got these wonderful collaborations with international colleagues where we've got these samples across the whole area and across Greenland and some from Iceland and, and, you know, some from the Med should be turning up actually this week. Um, Now everybody's back in the office. Um, maybe briefly, Uh, but um, yeah, so I use genetics to look at how well connected these um, populations might be. So what separates them is historically, we know that depth, all of those different things that change with depth, all those different environmental factors, pressure and temperature and probably productivity. So food input, all of these things, we know that there are population changes with depth Um, And it'd be interesting to know, we're gonna see test that because we've got a depth range as well, but we're also gonna be testing to see how well connected they are across geographical distance as well. So, you know, from Canada to England, is this all one big population? Is it quite well mixed? You wouldn't think so, given the distances, but you know, do these eggs float for really long periods of time? And then, you know, land in an area that seems okay, here's a nice bit of hard surface, you know, God knows what the cues are for that. Who knows? That's a whole other research field. But yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in the connectivity. And I'm interested because there are deep sea impacts. And humans do interact with the deep sea, probably more regularly than anyone really realizes. Um, And that means that we are going to have to start protecting some of these areas. And to do that, we need to have an idea of how well connected they are. So if we if this bit you know, was to disappear? Is it the source population or a sink population? Which direction of gene flow is going here? Um, and to be honest with you, I did a review a few years ago. We only know that for, a, I can't remember. It was probably not that there was only a hundred and odd papers on it in the deep sea. I think there was two papers covered 25% of the sea floor of our planet. Like there's hardly anything on really deep, hardly anything below two thousand meters. Even though the average depth of our oceans is what three thousand eight hundred meters, so we're we're really hovering around the top edges of this. But um, yeah. So that's one of the re- that's one of my big questions. That's one of the things I'm really interested in.
0: Yeah, there's so much we don't know. So there's so much to learn, and I find that really intriguing. I love it. the the The, the
1: discovery element is definitely one of the things that drew me to this field are you tempted are you going to come over to the literally the dark side
0: <laughs> uh i my specialty is plants so there aren't really any plants there, <laughs> so. oh i
1: didn't know no, I, I would be <laughs> there must be some i mean i mean mesophotic areas are becoming a really hot topic around coral reefs huh. so you have kind of the areas where we all dive to about 30 meters and then the deep sea guys get interested about 200 meters. And then there's this gap in between where nobody's really looked. <laughs> so there's this, and I'm sure that there are unusual algae and unusual things that exist in those areas because there's still light there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe yeah. there you go.
0: Yeah, that's so intriguing. <laughs> I don't know if my fieldwork skill set would translate there because my skill set's like falling in holes, driving an airboat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I I saw on Twitter that there was this wonderful um, thread where people said, the skills are essentially, um, the skills are crucial to your job, but you cannot write on your CV because you'll essentially sound like a nutter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think we all
0: have some of those. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I know it'd be great if you could just like have a section like, uh, you know, random skills. That might come in use. Exactly. I, we were discussing it in our lab and ours would be
1: writing um, neatly on tiny objects. So writing very clearly, but on tiny things and at sea when the ship's moving. That's another added challenge. And that's mm. vital because if you can't read it, you don't know what it is later. No. down
0: the road. It's like
1: one of the most <laughs> crucial skills in any lab. Nobody's, nobody lists it, even though I know some people cannot do it. They can't do it for their lives.
0: Yeah, that sounds hard. <laughs> so I'm curious how you, how, it sounds like you started off in like maybe more tropical corals and went to deep sea corals. So I'm curious about how you got into like the coral world in the first place. And then what made you switch or maybe you still do both, but wh- where you jumped into deep sea stuff.
1: Yeah, I have a, a, one warm foot and one cold foot, I suppose. My, I straddled both of the coral realms. Um Yeah I started, um, I've always been a bit obsessed actually with coral even though I'm from Manchester which is you know not on the sea. Um, Yeah I've I've always been interested in the marine environment and um, coral and randomly I've always been obsessed with Madagascar. Um, I think because you know it's like a zoologist dream location and a friend of mine bumped into somebody else who was literally just talking about coral and talking about Madagascar the same way I do and we ended up going starting um, a not-for-profit organisation in southwest Madagascar called Reef Doctor. So I actually lived in in Madagascar right by a coral reef for a few years so that really solidified my obsession with it Uh, not just the biology but also humans like so like you know people live next to coral reefs and they have to exist together and finding sensible ways where um the coral survives and the humans survive and it is survive because people don't destroy coral for fun they just usually do it for very reasonable reasons actually like feeding your children that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do um so that kind of mix of human and, and biology is something that I I try and make sure I have through my science. So which is why I'm interested in, you know, management and the human, like the how are we going to manage this area and what does that mean? So, yeah, that's how I kind of got into the shallow water bit. And then when I started my PhD, I saw this PhD advertised um, with um, Professor Alex Rogers. It was based at the Zoological Society in London and it was about um, deep sea coral And the second I started scratching the surface in this area of knowledge, I was like, Oh, this is amazing. This is so unknown. Like people like we're still working out what the species are and like genetically in evolutionary terms, how did they evolve down there or did they, did they evolve down there and then populate the shallows? You know, these are still questions that are being asked and I just found it fascinating. I I think I'm just drawn to the unknown.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, I think, uh, I know me personally, uh, my w- background's in wildlife. Like, as a wildlife biologist, I am drawn to Madagascar because it just seems so cool and diverse. I mean, I've never been, but I would love to go one day.
1: You have to go. It's heavenly. I, it's honestly, it, it, it's my favorite place on the planet. Um, you know, it's, I've I've never, I've never lived anywhere quite like it and there's such a diversity of wildlife there it's insane like 90% of the things that you set your eyes on aren't found on any other part of the planet and the and it's the tragedy is that it's it's you know that, that, that wildlife is being lost and um it worries me um immensely that the, the forest systems of that plant of that part of our planet are being lost at such a, a crazy rate um but yeah it's it's a difficult one because again you're balancing the need of humans with the need of of wildlife and that is always going to be a tough uh, line to walk
0: Mm -hmm. yeah balancing anything with humans is tough like you know (laughs) we we well I don't specifically but like people in the program I work on are trying to balance the needs of like wetlands restoration but with the needs of the people who live there and like fish there and survive you know they they use these areas for their you know livelihood it's so tough those kinds of questions
1: yeah i mean i i I was naive when i first went to madagascar and i i didn't um i don't think i approached it in the way that i would now um i like we should have really embedded ourselves much more in the community because that environment won't thrive if that community is not thriving.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we lived in that, we lived in the community, but I don't think mentally I was approaching it in, in the same way as I would now. Yeah, Like it has to be driven almost by that community. If you can just give people structures to, you know, manage it for themselves, that's such a, um, a more sensible approach. I don't know how I mean there's a whole research fields on this aren't there I'm like I'm dabbling in something I know nothing about here so yeah that's not an area of science that I wish I'd done more of it actually probably would have been far more useful
0: yeah it's not my area either. that's why there's other people who do that around here <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you also did the Weddell Sea Expedition in 2019 I'm curious about that like what is that
1: yeah, the, 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 the Weddell Sea expedition was absolutely um, incredible, really. Um, it was um, a joint kind of gold expedition. So it was to look at ice shelves and to see what animals live. I wanted to see what animals lived under um, ice shelves. So ice shelves are large chunks that, are, that fall off um, seemingly a little bit more often than they used to. Um, and then float out to sea. And the areas underneath these ice shelves could have been locked away for 10,000 years or more. And that means that they've had a very different productivity cycle, a different type of water flow, might be restricted. It might be even higher, who knows? Um, Probably restricted based on the sediments we've seen. Um, But looking at those um, areas, you can only really get there as soon as that ice shelf is gone. Because uh, after, after that point, there's gonna be um, hope, uh, like another buildup or also all of those things I talked about will change over time. So if you don't get there very quickly, then all of the, the if, if any member of that community was relying on there being a certain uh, flow of water or a certain type of productivity, they they might go, they might just be gone, they, they die. So you've got to get there relatively quickly. Um, and <laughs> it was, an, I mean, it's just pure chance that we got there at the time we did. We were the f- most southerly of all the vessels that went that year, I think. We managed to sneak our way down the western section of the Weddell Sea um, in Antarctica. And it was a really low ice year, super low ice year. And um, yeah, we, mani- we didn't get to the area that we wanted to, where this large iceberg ice shelf had broken off but we did get to the um ice shelf just before that and the reason why we didn't is because it just goes to show how little we know about our deep sea because this massive iceberg we it it broke off and like it was predicted to just disappear out into the Weddell sea um what it actually did was there's a, a ridge system that is not mapped Um, obviously, um, underneath that area. And it just wobbled around on this, it got caught on this ridge system and then just wobbled there. So it created a pinch point, which meant that we were trying to play chicken with icebergs and get through this pinch point which doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So um, it was too dangerous. And this, we've, you know, sensibly, um, we it was decided that we weren't going to go to the original location that we wanted to. But what we did get to do was do loads of surveys in the area to see, for instance, if we know the history of that ice shelf area. So we know that it was last covered, say 100 years ago, or 500 years ago, or and we can see if the communities are different in those areas. So that's what we looked at. The second prong of that expedition was to try and find Shackleton's lost ship, the um, Endurance.
0: <laughs> Is it so, somewhere? Um, in that area? Like I don't know enough about Shackleton. I know that uh, his ship uh, was gone or was gone. <laughs> and that yes, got stranded. But I don't. I don't know much else, actually. As it turns out.
1: So the Endurance was trapped in ice for the, one of the first expeditions down to Antarctica and they went in on the east side of Antarctica, got locked into ice for like two years, like a really long time. Shackleton was um, in charge of of this ship and what is a miracle is that nobody died. They all survived um, and relatively well and in that time that the ship was locked and then eventually the ship got crushed and they were just on the ice they it essentially pushed them towards kind of the center of the Weddell Sea. And then they worked their way across um, and did one of the craziest kind of voyages known to man um, where they, um, they got back to land and then a small number of the, their um, party set off across the roughest seas in the world, like in the Southern Ocean, to get to South Georgia, where there was a whaling station that they visited on the way down, and they managed it. They managed it, which is just and the boat was. Ah, there's a replica of it outside the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge, and it's like five meters long, six meters long. Like this is a tiny boat. So uh, it's oh, it's in- incredible. So Shackleton is known as one of these um, people, like an amazing leader who managed to keep everybody alive and safe for, uh, in extraordinary circumstances. And bear in mind, this is before GPS and everything, but it, on the day that that ship disappeared, it was crushed by ice and it went through. He obviously recorded lots of very detailed recordings um, in the ship's log where that was. Um, and that's based on that information and predicted currents and, um, you know, all sorts of amazing background research. We kind of had a search area that we were going to target. And I can't say much more because there's, we had a TV crew on board and there's going to be a program. Well,
0: OK, well, that's awesome. And I want to know when it comes out, because I would love to watch it. I knew that they had gotten stuck in the ice and then basically had to leave the ship. I didn't remember <laughs> that again crushed and then, yeah, cause he's—I I don't know how everybody survived because I'm pretty sure I would have just like died <laughs> because that's like an extreme circumstance. I don't yeah. think I'm not made of the same stuff those people were made of. Yeah,
1: I—I'm I, not gonna lie. I'm not sure that I would have fared very well either. I wish I could tell you that I was, you know, some bold explorer, but I've quite a nice cabin when we go on the ship. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I survived mostly on um, massive toblerones. That's that's the fuel ah. of science on
0: ships. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, next up, because I love to read about all these things. Next up I need to read about Shackleton. <laughs> There's
1: a very popular book um about about the expedition and about Shackleton. And um I was reading it on the way in. Weirdly they had they had a quite a famous um photographer on board and he, um he was using some of the first kind of videos have us so they're all in black and white but they, we were watching them when we were on the expedition and some of them are just incredible I believe you can get them on YouTube but there's a guy called Frank Hurley and um, really incredible um, pictures and video and he was I, I think there's a story that he had to be he kept going back onto this nearly sinking ship to pick up some of the photos that he'd taken because they're all on glass plates and things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um I think Shackleton told one of the crew to smash to like smash the ones that were still on the ship just to stop him because it was so dangerous.
0: I could see how you would want to like essentially save your data because that's what those photos are now, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and like for us as scientists, I mean I you know, it gives me the shivers, you know, you're like save everything.
0: <laughs> There's yeah. such borders. Right, I mean, I think about that on a way less extreme scale or like, okay, if we lose anything, let's not lose our data or, you know, the GPS. (laughs) Backed up, is it backed up to Google Drive? Is it backed up on this mini hard drive? Is it
1: on the server? Like, yeah, it's,
0: yeah.
1: oh. Yeah, oh wow, yeah, that's
0: so fascinating.
1: It was just a wonderful mix, I've never done it before because we had, you know, um, like, archaeologists on board and historians on board. So it was it was a real mix because normally it is scientists. This can be a range of different types of scientists, but it was nice to be on board with people with really different backgrounds and learn from them.
0: Yeah, because that's such a like broad thing to be looking for, you know, things under the ice shelves. And I don't know if there are other scientists doing other things, but then also looking for Shackleton ship, that seems like that would require a lot of different types of people. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, there is there's a lot of glaciologists on board who are interested in the depths of some of these ice shelves, and that's to um, kind of calibrate the ones that you get from satellite data. So most of it is broadly used from satellite data, but it's good to get ground truth in to calibrate that and to make sure that you know it is actually telling you the depths that you think it is, because that goes to how much water is being you know, sea level rise and how much water is constantly locked into Antarctica or not.
0: Yeah. Be nice to know what, how big that thing is and how much water it's displacing. I think that that was interesting what you said, that the bottom was unmapped and which is not, I guess, surprising, but that there were ridges and it just got trapped there. I think that's so fascinating.
1: Yeah, this, I mean, there are, I wrote a paper about how many seamounts. So this is a mountain. This is a 1,000-meter-high structure in the deep sea. They are not all mapped. Um, we reckon there's 33,000 of them, but we, we don't know. And nobody knows. So it's not like that data is there and hidden. So there's a, quite a famous incident of a U.S. submarine hitting a deep-sea seamount that was not mapped on a map, you know. So it's, it does... The the things we don't know about the deep sea, the areas that are unexplored and unmapped is extraordinary. Um, And this is part of my campaign to be funded to the same amount as NASA, right? Because all of the space exploration, and I know there's been so many cool inventions from space exploration, um, but we don't have a map of our planet. We have a better map of the surface of the moon. And now we have a better map of the surface of Venus. Venus! than we do with our own planet. Like, think about that for a while. That's that's crazy. I don't want to be inward-looking and navel-gazing here, but that would be massively useful, surely.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It seems like it's just a case of not studying what's right in your own backyard, essentially. <laughs> you know, like, we well, would be, it'd be good to know that and see what's down there because I imagine it's uh, very diverse and interesting.
1: And, it's, and And also it's challenging. Like, technology-wise, it's challenging because... The best maps that you can get you have to have a ship go over the top and do multi-beam so it, it bounces you know off the sea floor and, and the ship records how long that takes and from that you can get a really kind of good map of how deep it is and things like that and um, and some of the soundings that we have that we then compare when we go places they're 500 meters out so you map everything before you put anything in the water if you've not got a decent map so, you do multi beam is the first thing you do in an area before you put in your robots. So, you want a good map. You want to know if it's, you know, you don't want to slam this thing into the seafloor, right? So, um, you do really good maps. And sometimes, from the soundings from like this really broad, you know, international, global level map that we have, sometimes our detailed map is 500 meters higher or lower than what we thought the seafloor would be. That's half a kilometer it's a really long way <laughs>
0: and, and that's relatively common. <laughs> yeah it's a massive difference. A bit, honestly, it Honestly blows my mind. When y'all map an area before you do any work do those like maps get saved and pieced together somewhere or is it just like a one use type thing?
1: That's a really good question so broadly at a national level I know the UK shares a lot of its maps so when we're approaching the UK we get that latest map and what we try and do is Shave a little bit extra off so we, we like you know, we mow the lawn, we do that extra little section that hasn't been done before, even if it means going like a mile out of our way, just to make sure that the map's a little bit better than it was beforehand. And but on a global scale, that's a good question. I don't know, I I mean, I know people that would know, but myself, I don't know. I'm hoping there is, yeah. I was just
0: curious because you've got the map for your own use, and I, I mean, I don't know if there's like some you know, central place where you can just like add on to the, the map, but yeah, I have no idea. Mm.
1: So, yeah, and I, I know definitely in the UK there is, and the, mm-hmm. some of the we usually reach out to people you know, deep sea science is actually, in my experience, been very collaborative and very helpful. So, it, I think it's because this there's, there's not that much competition, maybe because there's so much left to know,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: there's so many other directions you could go in if someone's doing that one thing that you thought was. Rather unusual that by some fluky chance someone's doing it um but um so when we've gone to places that we haven't been before and but we know you know someone else has we tend to just contact those researchers and be you know is there any chance that we could have your amazing multi be maps please because it will save us five days of research time and they're like of course here are the maps um but that technology's moved along so quickly that quite often you just end up redoing the map when you're there
0: mm
1: if it's been a while, because it's pretty rare to go back to places. It's going to be, you know, maybe 10 years in between if we're lucky.
0: I can't imagine that the deep sea world is, you know, a massive group of people. I mean, I feel like once you really get into it, most fields are relatively small. Like any career, there's always
1: going to be some people that you're just going to avoid once you work that out. Yeah, I remember not being in the position to be able to avoid some people and that was very frustrating, but happily now in a place where I just work with friends and people I like. Mm um But yeah, it is. I, I compared to some of my other science friends, it seems like a really collaborative environment. Actually, I think it's because when you do go to sea, you try and collect everything in a way, even if you're not going to do that research yourself, because you know it's so rare. It's such a privilege to be able to go and to like go to this one spot on the planet that you're pretty sure no one's ever seen before. You it, you just you try and collect everything, so you know, I preserve samples in a range of different ways. So we flash freeze a bit, we put some in RNA later, we put some in ethanol, we dry a little bit, just in case, like I don't, you know, I have collaborators who want some of those, but we just, we do it all ways in the hope that it's useful for people.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, too, because it's also making the most of your visit there, too, because if something might be useful down the road, like, oh, you've already got it because you went that one time and we're forward thinking enough to have done it, which would be fantastic. Mm. It means
1: processing on the ship is uh, it takes a long time. So you have you sit and watch the video footage. Normally, any, you know, it can go up to a day. So the ROV um, can be down there for a day. Um, mm-hmm. our ships work twenty four hour operations because it's really expensive and we're maximizing the science, you know. These are usually government funded. We're not messing around. you know, part of your public purse went into this. So mm-hmm. let's try and use it while we have it. So there is a big element of, of like twenty four hour operations and managing that is a whole other story. but the um after twelve uh, after that long, when she, once it comes to the surface, it tends to be laden with animals if because if it's a biology led one the ones that i got one then you tend to have so many so you have to have really good record keeping of where they all came from because you want to know exactly what depth and what location um and then you spend it could be another 12 hours in a in a fridge so because of deep sea and they've come from two degree water you want to keep them cold and chilled for as long as possible so we work in a fridge we work in a four degree room so we're dressed up like mitchell and men in many layers and um, with lots of thermals and um, and it's freezing and we prepare photograph take sub samples label excessive labeling label twice just to make sure um, and then curate and and have it all written down um, and that can take just so long and I will I'm eternally grateful to the non-biologists on board who come and put their hours in and help us and even like even geologists have done this so yeah they've been uh, it's again it goes to the collaborative spirit of, of an expedition like these joint aims we all have
0: yeah that's good I can imagine that that's just so much so many samples and all that processing I, in my head it would just take forever because yeah well I was
1: I'm trying to think about what was the, probably the most probably the most complicated specimen was one of those corals that was mentioned before a soft coral who pretends it's a hard coral by having a hard skeleton um it's called Corallium. it's beautiful the beautiful network of of a coral and um But it's also a home, it's a habitat. And off that coral, there must have been, you know, a few crinoids, these feather stars, there was um, brittle stars entwined in it. And then uh, there was all of these worm tubes in it. And there was like over a hundred worms in that one coral. And because we want to record the associations and how these animals exist, we, we, obviously we have to preserve all, we preserve them individually for I think 20 of them individually, and then we batch them in tens, but they are all, all linked with that coral. So we, all, we always know that, that those animals came off that one coral. But you imagine how many tubes that is. You're talking you about tiny tube, Ryan, so many tubes, so many preparations, and then all of that time individually putting them with tweezers into these, <laughs> into these jars. Like it's, it is a labor of love
0: yes absolutely that's a good way to describe it are we in the science i think yeah that's probably true i was thinking while you were talking about that like the most of my field work isn't done collecting samples it's like doing the measurements in the field but we have this one project where we do soil cores in the summer and i mean they go in like ziploc bags but you know you have to have all of these bags and it's like thousands of bags every summer uh yeah and then then like Putting that in a tinier scale with the tiny tubes. Oh my gosh, (laughs) so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was talking about it recently because I'm looking at data from an expedition that was probably like seven years ago. And I was like, oh, I wonder where this came from. Like what, I wonder what coral this creature came from. And we tracked it back. And just the fact that you can do that and it's well labeled and it's still in my freezer and it's ready to go. I was just like, (gasps) oh. You know, thank you so much. My my colleagues at sea who, you know, at three AM in the morning were pulling this tiny little bit of coral off and popping it in a tube in a fridge, <laughs> like probably blue. So yeah, you've just got to be so thankful for colleagues and people helping you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and doing it right makes that data so so valuable, like long term, like you just said, it was seven years ago, so that's awesome.
1: Yeah, and 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 you know, my I have people working in the lab, and they're doing the DNA extractions, and the DNA's been fine, and you just think if we hadn't done it that way, then so it is, it's it's front loading all of it, isn't it, and um, it's painful but it is worth it. I'm so thankful for them. I was thinking I might just send them all an email, you know, seven years later being like, I know that you were in a fridge with me seven years ago and I just want to tell you, I love you for it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's so valuable later. That's yeah. It's so great. Mm. I like that you called it front loading because I, I always, um, front load our field schedule knowing that it's not going to go to plan because work never goes to plan, but then we have, you know, buffer at the back, um, I had to explain that to to somebody, what what front-loading meant. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You plan for
1: the worst, hope for the
0: best. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Is there anything else you want to talk about?
1: Oh, I I don't know. More of your research, probably. That sounds um, more interesting than mine.
0: Yeah, I don't actually do any of the processing. I'm primarily a field biologist. Um, I collect all these things and then hand them off to my PIs. This is student workers to do it. (laughs) which I'm sure that they are thrilled when I show up with, you know, so many bags of soil for them.
1: That sounds so fun though. I mean, field biology, it's, it's literally, that's what every single one of my undergrads would give their right arm for is to how to be a field biologist. So many of them want to be in the field. And I think, I don't know about you, but it's definitely an element of my job that if, if that element was to go, I, I I'd, I'd feel that, like I, I think I need that element those every few years going to see, So I can't, it must be a comfort to know that that's part of your job.
0: Yeah, it goes both ways. There are days where I love it. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get, cause we don't have an office. So I'm ready to just like get out of my house and go in the field and it's, you know, nice weather out or whatever. But then there are days in the depths of August here where I'm like, I just want to be at home in the air conditioning. (laughs) So it goes both ways, but on the whole, yeah. Having, I, I love doing field work. I'm not willing to trade it for anything right now, so. No, no. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Have a good rest of the day. It's nice to meet you. Hey, y'all. It's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said, so go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.